Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. Genesis 5, verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years and he became the father of Methuselah and had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are so grateful for um, some of the founding fathers in the faith in terms of models for us of what it is to live out a life that is pleasing to you. And uh, we learn here that Enoch is described as a man who walked with you, and we here today as well walk with you, and um, but we have lots to learn still in our walk. Uh, some of us are new to the faith, some of us have been Christians for many, many years, so we'll be in the, in the spectrum in between somewhere between Enoch and our own, in our own lives now. And so I, I just know, Lord, that you have something to say to every one of us in here in terms of where we compare to Enoch and the model he has become for us. Thank you. You wrote about him in your word, and we can learn from his life. In Christ's name. Just want to start off with a question to you, uh, just a fun one to get us going here. Uh, if I were to ask you about men and women in the Bible that you considered uh, models of faith that you want to emulate your life after. What kind of people would you bring to mind? Right off the bat. Right off the bat. Ezra, Abraham. Okay, Abraham, David, Ezra. I heard those. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> That's a, yeah. Yeah. How do I say no to that one? How about the women? Come on, get some women out there. Not Esther. Esther, yeah. Sarah. Sarah. Okay, great. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Right on. Okay. So clearly we know a lot about these people and what they've meant to us in terms of learning through the scriptures. Why didn't any of you mention Enoch? You mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. It's not a surprise that no one talks about Enoch, really. Um, he's got very little written about him. Nine verses in the Bible are written about Enoch. Only nine. Two are genealogies. His, the name is listed in a gene, genealogy, which means only seven verses are really spoken about his life. But I want to show you that even though Scripture is scarce about this guy, what it contains speaks volumes of the kind of man he was. And my hopes for us today is that by the time I'm done, that you will see him in a different light. And you'll appreciate him more as a man of a God who you'd want to pattern your life after as a model of faith. So let's just begin now uh, by looking at um, uh, Genesis 5 here. Uh, we find ourselves in Genesis 5 and verse 21 in the midst of a genealogy. This genealogy in Ge- Genesis 5 records all the generations from Adam to Noah. So it's 10 generations over a span of around 1,600 years. Now when you look at the history here and you do the math, you discover Enoch was born in the 7th century after Adam was created in the Garden of Eden. To be precise, he was born in the 622nd year of the creation of the world. And he was uh, kind of unique then because he was one of the first people ever to live on the face of the planet. So he was really unique in that way. 
But even though he was unique in that way, we're still not given a lot, though, about his family of origin. Uh, we, we are told a little bit here. Uh, his, his mother is not mentioned in, in verse 21 and verse 22. But we do know that um, from verse 19 that his father's name was Jared. And Jared lived to be uh, 800, 800 years old before he, and then he uh, had Enoch. Sorry, that's not true. He was 162 when he had Enoch. 162. So much for being a good handler of the word. But he's 162 when he had Enoch, and so he was an old fellow compared to a lot of us who've had children. But we learned that he wasn't an only child. He had other brothers and sisters. Verse 19 tells us that he, uh, his parents had other sons and daughters. So while we know nothing about his parents, we do know that they, were, they took God's command to be fruitful and multiply to heart because they had a fairly large family, it seems, from Scripture. And we also learn nothing about his childhood, but what we do know from verse 21 and 22 is he followed in his parents' footsteps. And like many of us in here today, he had his own family. He got married and started a family of his own. So he was also, like his parents, uh, obedient to the command to God to be fruitful and multiply. And in verse 22, we learn that he had other sons and daughters, but his, but his most sort of famous son is named Methuselah in verse 21. And Methuselah, interestingly enough, lived to 969 years old, the oldest man in the Bible. I was in, a, I think it was in the States uh, a couple of years ago, if I remember correctly, my location, and we were, uh, I saw an antique store, and it was called Methuselah's. And I thought it was a clever name for an antique store, considering uh, he's the oldest man ever in Scripture. So the 65th year of his life proved to be a huge uh, year for him because he gave birth to Methuselah. We learned that in verse 21, right? He says, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And we all know what it's like as parents um, who have children. It's a life changer. It's a game changer in terms of time and your, your efforts and where you, how you think and so on and so forth. But we learn here at 65 that it wasn't only a physical birth that radically changed his life. I would suggest from the passage here that there's a spiritual birth that took place in his home as well that radically changed him. Look at verse 21 again. Enoch lived 65 years. He became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. It seems there that his walk began at age 65 after he gave birth to his first son. So yes, he had a physical son, and he had a, a physical birth. But here it seems there's a spiritual birth that occurs as well. Now I don't know what the events were that led up to this spiritual rebirth. But the cool thing is, is that maybe it had something to do with the birth of a son. I know for many of us in here who've had kids, I think when we, when you, you know, if you think about it, when you have children, you always think, how am I going to raise them? What do I want to sort of uh, lead them into in terms of belief systems based on what I've experienced in my own life? And maybe kids... Is for us often is the, is the mover and shaker towards wanting to go back to church or wanting to re, revisit faith issues and so on and so forth. And I'm wondering if maybe the birth of his son had Enoch revisit his own beliefs and think, man, I don't want to raise my kid the way I've been living. And maybe that was the catalyst to, to his salvation. I don't know what it was, but at least we can see here for sure at 65 that this guy started to walk with God after his 65th year. I think the important thing to recognize, though, is that even though he's a man described as a man who walked after God and, and he's like a model of faith, we can see here he didn't always do that. 
And I think sometimes as Christians, we put Noah and people like Esther and, and all these people like in this camp, like they were never, they were always Christians and always faithful. <laughs> well, I mean, no one's not a descendant of Adam. All of us have descended from Adam, which means all of us inherited a sin nature. All of us before God are not righteous on our own merits. And so Enoch, like the rest of us, have had to come to a place where he recognized himself as a sinner in the presence of God and sacrifice his life and surrender his life to him. So now, while he was similar to us in terms of his need for spiritual rebirth, the world he lived in was very different than ours. The world he lived in was very different. And I wanted to show you a couple of things that, to compare and contrast the, the, the world he had compared to ours. And I would suggest that in one area in particular, that the world he lived in in terms of the climate environment was far superior to anything we experience today. And the reason is, is that Enoch lived in a time before the world had, be arra- had been rearranged by the flood. Enoch lived post or pre-flood. And if you look at the graph behind me here, I've got all the generations on, on here. And that line going down the graph, this black arrow, is when the flood hit in year 1656. And Enoch is the shortest bar on there. The shortest bar at 365 years old. He's the shortest guy on the graph. And he's pre-flood. So the world he lived in was very different than ours. And you can look this up yourself later. But in Genesis 1, verse 6, it appears that there was a canopy of water encircling the atmosphere around the earth. And that would have protected the world from the sun's UV radiation, allowed for more moderate climates, and more controlled temperatures. And in Genesis 2.5, we learned that the earth was uh, watered from um, below with a water sprinkling system that was natural to the earth's environment. So there was no rain in the day of, days of uh, creation, and there was no rain in the days of Enoch. I'll show you this in Genesis 2.5. It says here, uh, No shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet been sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there, and there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to arise from the earth and water the whole ground from the surface. So very interesting. If you had water from below, this canopy of water and water from below, you have what is, uh, in essence, a greenhouse effect. And all of us who know about greenhouses know that even in our climate, if you have set up a greenhouse, the vegetation, plant life, and quality food is high, far superior to what we have in natural environments. So the world was kind of in this naturally affected greenhouse. So what that would result in then is a quality of food and plant life far beyond anything we experience today, providing people with unparalleled health benefits. What was the result then? Well, you would think then life expectancy would be higher. And guess what? That's exactly what we have. Life in Enoch's days was measured in centuries and not decades. If you look at the, all the names of those people up there, I know you can't really see them um, well. But Adam, Seth, Enosh, and so on. Up to that line where the flood occurs, the average age pre-flood was 912. 912. When you get to the line, uh, to, the, to the right of the line, that's after the flood, the average age is 294. 294 up to the age of Abraham. That only like in about four or five hundred years, and interesting. Interesting is uh, the first uh, four generations there after the flood. They're all in the four hundreds, and then they drop to two hundred. And after Abraham, it's one sixty-five, and now we're down to an average life of about 80, 80, 80 years, is maybe like the average North American age now. So we've gone from nine hundred and twelve down to two ninety-four 
in, the, in two, three hundred years, the only attributing factor to that is the world has changed. The world has changed. And the world continues to change because our average age now is 80 years old. So you think about that. People sometimes don't have answers for, oh, I, you know, if you tell someone in the world today, people used to live to 900, they'll look at you like you have two heads and three eyes. Like, you I mean, are you kidding me? People live to only 105, 110 if you're lucky. Again, that's because we don't understand the climate and the world that God first created in the garden. And, and even though sin had come in, there were certain things that sin hadn't affected yet in terms of the climate. And once the global flood hit, it changed the world's topography incredibly. So even though Enoch lived in a world that was superior to ours in terms of environment and climate, it wasn't the case in terms of morality. In terms of morality, it was a terrible, terrible place, very similar to what we live in today. It was totally corrupt and morally deprived or depraved. Even though 700 years had transpired since the fall, only a really a short time in the world's history, the effects of the fall had fully gripped the earth, had fully gripped the earth. It was full of uh, corruption and decay. You can look up this later if you want, but Genesis 4 reveals a world characterized by violence and sexual immorality. Uh, Jude is very helpful in describing the attitudes of people during Enoch's day because he records in Jude a prophetic word made by Enoch in his day. This is really good. And Dan's preaching on Jude in, in uh, the houseboat, so this is kind of perfect timing. But look at what uh, Jude records about Enoch's prophecy in his day, in his time period, in the 7th century after Adam. He said, It was also about these men that Enoch, in the 7th generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I mean, you talk about a prophecy four times in, in, uh, in those verses. He talks about the people being ungodly in terms of their deeds and their words towards God. It, it clearly only progressively got worse from Enoch on, because in Genesis 6, 5-7, to the Lord says this. If you want, you can actually just turn there since we're already in Genesis 5. So look at the Lord's declaration of the world not too long after Enoch made this prophecy, starting in Genesis 6, verse 5. He says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created the face of this land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. You know, it's important for us as a church to understand how just far gone these people were in Enoch's day. Because, and we get a really good description of their moral character, because it's only in this light we can really see how unique it was for someone like Enoch to have faith. I mean, could you imagine the temptations he'd have to face? And the, the, the pressures to not uh, go God's way in a culture like that? So bad that God says, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to destroy this world, and it's just a matter of time. And it's just really important to understand this based on how Enoch is defined in that culture. Look at, look at verse 22 in Genesis 5. Look at the description of him. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years. Look at verse 24. Enoch walked with God. This is a man who is defined as walking with God twice in four verses. 
in a culture that is so depraved, God is like, I'm getting rid of these people pretty quick here. Full of sexual immorality, full of uh, violence, full of hatred towards God. Now, I find it fascinating when Enoch is described this way. You know, Dan and I in our studies often ask this question to one another. What do you find surprising about this passage? Because usually what you find surprising about a passage is what is where sometimes the lessons are. But what I found surprising was that Enoch is defined as someone who walked with God. Now, why would I find that surprising? Well, when, when the word walk is used in the, in the New Testament and Old Testament, it's always used in reference to obedience to God's commands. Always in reference to obedience to God's commands. So when the law of Moses was in existence, God would refer to the Israelites that he wanted them to walk in his ways and obey his commands. Uh, Deuteronomy 30.16, for example. If you obey my commands, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and statutes, then you shall live and multiply it, and the Lord God will bless you. But also in the New Testament, walking is defined in terms of obedience to, to the Lord's commands. But not the Mosaic Law, but to Jesus. And those of us in John, who've been going through John, know that to walk in the ways of Jesus is to obey his commands. But think of John, uh, 1 John 2, 3-6. to 6. 1 John 2, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Now by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Okay? So walking is always in reference Old Testament in regards to the law and New Testament in regards to the Jesus' commands. But Enoch lives what? Prior to the law. Prior to Jesus' commands. Yet he's defined as someone who's walking. So if you're defined as someone who's walking, and that's a reference to obedience, what commands is Enoch walking in? <laughs> and how is he being obedient to the Lord if there is no law and no commandments of Jesus? It's a very interesting question, at least it was for me, and was what, that's what made me so interested in his life. Well, let me just say this, that right from the beginning of time, I want to suggest to you, and I want to show you from Scripture, that God had established right from the beginning, right from the days of Adam and onward, always what it was, to um, how to relate to Him, and how He wanted people to live in relationship with Him as His people. Right from the beginning of time, He made it very clear what His regulations for morality were, and what proper worship looked like. I want to first describe to you what, how he taught people to properly relate to him in worship. When we think of the Old Testament sacrificial system, we usually go to Leviticus, and we usually think, oh, that's for Israel in the, in the desert. That was for Israel in the temple. That was Israel in the times of Moses onward. But you know what? When you go through the scriptures pre-desert, pre-law, you find every single man who's referenced as a righteous, faithful, godly person participating in animal sacrifice. Now what's cool is Abel, who's a little bit older than Tyson Lissa's Abel, <laughs> Abel was, existed before Enoch, and what happened? He was, his sacrifice was, a, was an animal, we saw that in the garden. You see that in, his, in the reference there. And he says he brought fat portions thereof. So he's sacrificed an animal and God accepts a sacrifice. 
So that's, in, that's before Enoch exists. Later on, we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all building altars, all participating in animal sacrifice before the law. When God says to Abraham, take your son and do this, Abraham goes, do what? I don't understand what to do. What do you want me to do? He knew exactly what to do. He knew what to carry, where to go, how to do it. I mean, everything was there. And his son said, where's the lamb, dad? Where's the lamb? How did Abraham's son know that? There's no commands anywhere up to that day of anything being recorded in the Bible that that was necessary. But clearly... God had been revealing to the godly people and the faithful people throughout the generations that was required as an expression of worship. Now what I love is, but what I love the most of is Noah. Because Noah is, is his great-great-grandson and he's so close to Enoch in time, comparatively. And I want you to see the details of what Noah knew about sacrifice to show you that God had clearly revealed to his people what it was to worship him. And we have to turn there as a church. Turn with me to... Uh, um, Genesis chapter 7, verse 1 to 3. Genesis uh, 7, 1 to 3. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and a female. Also, of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. Now flip over with me to chapter 8, verse 20. Noah, the flood has come. Noah gets out of the ark, right? He's opened the door and he comes out of the ark. 8.20. Then Noah, first action he does when he gets out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal of the every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and so on. Here's a question. How in the world does Noah know what clean and unclean is? I thought clean and unclean was only Leviticus. No one knows what unclean and clean is. He doesn't have to ask God for any instruction. He knows exactly what to do. And how did he know to sacrifice only the uh, clean animals and leave the unclean alone? How did he know to do that? And when God smelt it, it was a soothing aroma. No one knew exactly what he was doing. And, I would, and he knew somehow it was passed down. Passed down. So here's the thing, guys and girls. There's unlikely that if Noah... Abraham, post-Enoch, and Abel, pre-Enoch, which God had modeled in the garden to Adam and Eve, is not participating in animal sacrifice as an expression of worship to God. And what that reveals is what he understands about God, see? If you're doing that, you understand a couple things. A, God is super holy compared to you. (laughs) B, you have sin in the presence of God that needs to be dealt with. Three, uh, that God is going to punish sin through death and only blood will do. There's nothing ritualistic you can do to, to make yourself right with God. It only comes through His method of dealing with sin. And by participating in this, you knew you weren't being forgiven of sin, right? But you knew that it was a reminder of your sins year by year. And that God one day was going to deal with it on His own terms. So what the sacrificial system was. 
It existed way before the law and all the godly men were, were participating in this. So here's, so, so yeah, so first of all, what God, Enoch would have remembered or known about this because either A, God revealed it to him directly through a vision dream or audible voice, or probably if you look at this graph, which is what I really like about this, you'll notice that Adam at the very top lives to 912 or 930, I should say. You'll notice that Enoch was born, Enoch was born 308 years before Adam died. They could have very well known each other, been in the same geographical location, and Adam taught him, as well as the other people, what it was to appropriately worship God from that day forward, after he'd sinned in the garden. Either way, Enoch would have known what to do. Second thing that I think that Enoch would have known quite clearly would have been God's level and expectations for morality. For morality. You go back to this again in Jude 14. He would only know to cry out to the nations and the people in there what was ungodly if he had a standard of what godly was. <laughs> you can't tell someone you're ungodly in speech and ungodly in action unless you have a standard by which God's truth is to be obtained. And so Enoch, again, uh, likely, well, not likely, would have been either revealed through Adam or through God directly what his standards were. And they would be, uh, even though they're not recorded per se, like word by word, like they were in Leviticus, God clearly had an expectation of what life would have looked like for, for Enoch to walk around the nations and, and speaking and proclaiming truth in this way. You can see now why Enoch is considered a model of faith for us and why despite not having the law or the commandments of Jesus, this guy could be defined as a man who walked with God. And see, here's the key with this guy. To the degree of revelation he had about God and who he knew to him to be, he was willing to live that out and fully embrace that in his life. Whatever commandments he had in front of him, he fully lived to the fullest degree in obedience to them. And that's why he's listed as a hero of faith in Hebrews 11. And we'll finish our time in that passage today. So turn with me to Hebrews, Hebrews 11 in the New Testament. And turn with me to verse 5. Let's read verse 5 together. The author writes, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. The author of Hebrews records that by faith Enoch received two rewards. One... He didn't have to face death. He got to be translated or, res- or um, uh, raptured before his death in his, in his day. At 365 years old, he got to escape this world and go to glory right away, which is only the second, only other person ever to experience that was Elijah. So he was very unique in that. The second reward is he got to obtain witness that he was pleasing to God. He obtained a witness that he was pleasing to God. Now, when it says, by faith, these two rewards were given to him, we probably should have an understanding of faith. Well, faith is defined for us in verse 1. 
It says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by by it, the men of uh, old gained approval. Sorry, I got too much uh, pen in my notes. I can't read the words anymore. I feel like uh, Schultz now, hey, Jody? <laughs> yeah, inside joke for those of you who haven't seen his Bible. <laughs> so, yeah, but it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and by it, men of these men gained approval. We learned a few things about faith here. Faith is not simply defined by one's belief. What you think, what what you think, and it's not just—it's not a feeling. It's not just based on what you feel. It's defined in a very interesting way. It's—it's—it's defined as something that you hope for. So that's future in its thinking, and it's having assurance of those future thoughts, and you're convicted by it. So the conviction has to do with being um, positively assured of something. If you're convicted, you're—you know that it's true. And you believe it's true. So these men are believing, these men and women listed in this chapter are believing that when God speaks a, a promise about the future, that it's going to come true. And they rearrange their lives in the present as if they're going to receive those promises now. So it's a future promise not yet attained, but they rearrange their lives in the current state as if they were going to receive those promises now. And so the, everything about their life is, is action oriented based on the word of God. Now, with this, with this description, you would expect then to see something like that in Enoch's life. And we have looked at those things. We've already looked at the, the things he spoke and the things that he was doing probably in the, in, in the area of sacrifice and proper worship. But I want to just talk a little bit more about this here. When you look at the fact that he was said to have uh, been pleasing to God by obtaining witness... He obtained witness that before being taken up, he was pleasing to God. I don't know if any of you have the word commended in there in your Bibles. Does anyone of you commended instead of obtaining witness? A couple of nods. Okay. Yeah. When you look up the word in Greek for obtaining witness, the word commended, it actually means verification of one's character. To obtain verification of one's character. So what happens with Enoch here is that he's... He's obtaining witness that, that's pleasing to God because there's a verification that his character is of, of a plus quality according to God's standards. It's actually the same word used in Acts 10.22. This is really interesting. Cornelius has been given a vision, and God tells him, I, I want you to meet this man named Peter. Send men to go get him. So Cornelius sends men to go get Peter. And they show up at Peter's doorstep, and they say this. They say... Um, Cornelius has sent for you a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. Well spoken of is the same word for obtained witness or commended. Now what's interesting about that is he says well spoken of by the entire nation. That means that the obtaining witness that, that um, uh, Cornelius had was known to other people. It was publicly known to the entire nation of the Jews. When, when he says that Enoch here is, was pleasing to God by obtaining witness, that means Enoch was bumping shoulders with the non-Christian world. And the, other, and the people around him were looking at him going, this guy is connected to God. He's not connected to our world. This guy's connected to God. Which means that Enoch didn't have a private faith. Some of us in our culture think that, well, I'm a Christian, I'll just keep it to myself. That's not what God wants. 
That's not what is pleasing to God here. Enoch is public in his faith in that everyone knows that he's attached to God and not to the world. And that's a really important thing to recognize, that this is what made him so pleasing to the Lord. And that's what his, the, the substance of his faith was, was this. He believed so much in God's promises for the future of them that he was obtaining witness, he was bumping shoulders, he was preaching God's way, declaring God's way by the way he lived to all the people around him. And everyone noticed, not just the Lord, but the people around him. I think it's important to understand that he was willing to separate himself from the culture of the world and join himself to the family of God. And that's interesting, right? Because the description of these men and women in Hebrews 13 is what? It says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them from, and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So this is the attitude of, of, of Enoch as he, as he goes through life. He's always thinking about his connection to God and the fact that he's going to be with him one day in glory. And that's affecting the way he lives his life in the here and now. This is quite amazing when you think about this because, again, because of the longevity of the years of people's lives back then, he did that for 300 years. He faithfully modeled in his life and in his speech for 300 years that he was tied to God and not to this world. Many of you in here, um, you know, you'll probably, if you're lucky, you know, you'll live to 90. 90 is, but average Canadian age is 80. So let's just say, give you 10 extra years, you live to 90. You become a Christian at, at 20. You have 70 years maximum of Christianity. 70 years to stand up for the Lord and separate, separate yourself from this culture. Enoch got you beat by four times that, right? 300 years. And you, you think of the daily pressures in this society and the daily constant struggles to like resist the temptations we face and to, to stand up in this culture where it's so rampant in terms of immorality. And you have to maybe do it for 20, 30, 40, whatever, 70 years. And you do it for 300 years. And the guy has no record of sin recorded in his life. You know how many people in the Bible who are faithful and righteous have no record of sins recorded in their life? I can think of Joseph. Abraham doesn't. Moses doesn't. David doesn't. Men you'd want to model your faith after. Here we have this guy. I'm not saying he never sinned again, but there's nothing patternistic or nothing tragic that God records. He walked with God for 300 years, resisting in an impossible culture, what seemed like an impossible culture, a culture that God wanted to destroy. Because they were so wicked. And did in the flood. Not too long after. So what was the result of all this? Well, he got the ultimate reward. In 11.5, and back to Hebrews 11.5, he, uh, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. So, he got to be raptured. Um, <laughs> no record of what his wife and his kids thought of that. Can you imagine, like, you know, your husband goes to work and doesn't come home, and what happened? Well, we found his clothes, like, at work, but we don't know where he is, right? Or, Daddy, Mommy, you know, what happened to Daddy? I don't know. I think he's in heaven because his clothes are here, but he's gone, right? I mean, it's just crazy, but the guy was raptured, just like Elijah. So it was a beautiful, beautiful reward for his faithfulness and his righteousness. And just to give you hope, 
if Christ comes back in our lifetime, that's what's going to happen to us. Right? That's the promise of Thessalonians and Corinthians. When, when Christ returns, if we're still here, we get raptured. We just go up just like Enoch does. And it's a kind of a foreshadowing of our entrance into glory if Christ returns before we all die. So it's kind of a, it's not impossible for us to experience, experience an Enoch type moment if uh, God comes back in time. So let's just hope he does. What can we learn from Enoch? Um, here's about, I think, five, four lessons I'd like to give you. First one is this, and this is more uh, just to deal with the first half of the, the sermon. But as a believer, it's important that we have a solid understanding of the book of Genesis in order to properly interpret our world and be able to defend our faith. I fear for the church right now. Um, we are treating Genesis uh, more and more like it's a myth, like it's not true. And uh, we don't believe that what's written in the first 10, 11 chapters specifically have very much weight or bearing in our Christian walk. We're getting more and more apathetic. And I think it's a big deal that we understand that we can understand that the words in the first chapters of Genesis are legitimately as legitimate as anything Jesus said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching and, re- and so on and so forth. When Timothy made that statement, there was no, oh, sorry, Paul made that statement to Timothy, the New Testament didn't exist. When, right? when Paul said all scriptures inspired by God for teaching and correction and training and righteousness, the, old, the New Testament did not exist. All they had was the Old Testament. The Jewish people didn't say, well, except for the first ten chapters of Genesis, right? Right, Paul? Yeah, you're right. That's just mythological. But why does it matter? Why does it matter? Here's why. Because we, are not, we need to be equipped to handle some of the greatest questions that, that, that life has to offer. Right? Do you know why you wear clothes? Genesis tells you the answer. Do you know why we all speak different languages? Genesis tells you what the answer is to that. All these questions are answered. Do you know what happened to dinosaurs? Genesis tells you the answer to that. Where was the human origins come from? Genesis tells the answer to that. It matters because if we're going to separate ourselves from the world, we can't adopt things like millions of years in evolution into our thinking. We understand history from, from, this, from, from this. If Adam lived millions of years old, for example, then this genealogy here doesn't make any sense. Because it says that Enoch lived 622 years after Adam was born. Well, if it, was, if it was millions of years, then it was 600 million years plus 622 years. It doesn't work. So it, it, it really matters. And I went to Joseph Bird Tyrell Museum to the dinosaur exhibit um, a couple months ago, and everything in there, everything in there is evolution, millions of years, Big Bang, everything. I went to the, two uh, months ago, went on holidays to Toronto, went to the, the uh, aquarium beside the CN Tower, walk in this beautiful aquarium, everything in there is millions of years, Big Bang and evolution. Christianity is completely marginalized as an, uh, as, as an option for where the, the origins of the world and how to interpret the world today. So we have, to, we have to understand this is legitimate history and trust God at his word. It changes the way we defend our faith when we talk to different people. And I will tell you the story some other time, but I took one of the staff members toe-to-toe at Joseph Bird Tyrell on, over evolution, and it was a very fun conversation to have with him. (laughs) 
I would like to know how his mom and dad asked him how work went that day after. <laughs> that was gentle. Lesson two. Biblical faith is, is living in obedience to God's word, believing his promises to be true. This, of course, comes from, from Enoch in Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up. So what's biblical faith, like Enoch, is living in obedience to God's word, believing that God's promises are true. That's exactly what it is. See, Enoch lived his life out in, in his present reality, in full obedience to God, trusting that God was going to make good in his promises with nothing but his word to go on. Right? He rearranged his life there and then, in full obedience thinking God is true to his word and he will come through on his word and so I trust him with my life here and now. And that's a fantastic lesson for us, right? Faith for us is, I mean, it can include feelings, it can include intellect, I mean, I'm not discrediting that, but that is not biblical faith in and of itself. There has to be action from your life and my life in accordance with those beliefs. What are some of the things God calls us to in these areas? How about parenting? Parenting, those of us with children, he says, he makes promises. If you discipline your kids, this is what, if you don't discipline your kids, I should say, these are the results of lack of discipline, right? So the idea then is if you do, that those won't be the results. But it's up to us to take God's word of his promise in a culture, in a culture that does not approve of discipline. (laughs) They don't approve of it. Each child is free to make up their own decision and call the shots in the home. God says, don't do that. Separate yourself from the culture. Discipline your kids. It comes with a promise. It's up to us to live in faith like Enoch to believe that. Can we say in our parenting, we walked with God for you know, 10 or you know, 18, 18 years approximately. Walked with God for 18 years, not 300, but 18 years in the, in the area of parenting. How about finances? He makes promises if you tithe. And if you're generous, it will come with rewards. I will reward you if you... if you. It doesn't make sense from the world's perspective. You have to separate yourself from the world. But if you actually give money away in generosity and give money to the church in support of the people who spiritually invest in you, I will actually financially change your financial portfolio. It makes no sense to the world, but God says, I want you to separate yourself from the world and think like Enoch. Again... We'll have to tithe maximum maybe 70 years and 80 years in our life. Enoch, if he was tithing, would have done it for 300. <laughs> How about our spiritual destiny, right? God says, if you surrender your life to me and I, you make me your savior and you obey me for, for your life, for a lifetime, I will give you the reward of eternal glory. The world says, don't believe that. There's multiple ways to God. You can all go to heaven, just be a good person. I mean, I heard the most craziest one the other day. I was watching TV with a sports thing. Have you ever, any of you watch American Ninja Warrior? Awesome. <laughs> Lily, good job. So, this I've never heard this in my life. I mean, I've heard some wacky things about belief, but this guy gets interviewed and before his, his run... And they go, how do you think you're going to do? And he's like, well, if the, lo- if the lunar rays are on my side, things should go well. And I was like, the lunar rays? I'm like, how does that even practically work? The lunar Anyway, he fell in the water about like two-thirds of the way through. So, But I mean, like, you talk about wacky things to believe in. I'm, I mean, to, what takes more faith to believe in the lunar rays are helping you out in life or a, a historical Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sin? I mean, it's just... But that's okay, because you can believe the lunar rays in Jesus, and you're both going to glory anyway. So, 
I'm preaching to the choir, I know, but it's, it's worth having fun over. Yeah, but these are the things, like, you know, the, the promise of eternal life if you go God's way and come to Him uh, as a sinner in need of a Savior. These are all uh, lessons and applications to this uh, lesson. Third lesson, uh, living a life of bold witness is pleasing to God. Right? That is verse 5. He obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Again, faith's not a private matter. It's a public thing. We are to bump shoulders with other people to the point that people would go, yeah, you're not of the world anymore. You're connected to Jesus Christ. And that question for us is, do people in our families and our friends know us as belonging to the world, or do they know us as belonging to Jesus Christ? Again, if we have an attitude of private faith, they'll never know. But a life that's pleasing is one of bold witness. One of bold witness. So we need to get the message out there, both through our words and through our lives. And so the question I think to ask ourselves is, how are we known? How are we known? Would people even know that we're Christians if we asked them? Or how about in our speech? Just even our speech alone. When is the last time that you and I had a spiritual conversation that separated yourself from the world and made yourself connected to Jesus? Would you average once a week? Would you average once a month? Would you average once a year? Or since the moment you received Christ, you'd say you've never had a, a single conversation with anyone. I mean, listen, like living a life of bold witness is pleasing to God. So if you, if you find yourself on the once a month, once a year, never category, I encourage you to uh, get going. Final lesson for the day is to walk with God requires obedience to his commands. And regardless of era, you Enoch walk with God pre-law. You know, people in God in the Mosaic Law Day walk defined as walking with God, and you can walk with God when it comes to obeying Jesus' commandments. Walking with God is always in connection to obedience. It doesn't matter uh, what era or time frame you're in. Those of those of us in John know this. How many times has Jesus preached through the Gospel of John and made the declaration that you know who a Christian is by the way they behave and live. And again, the temptation to not walk in God's ways is greater and greater. Um, we're living in a world where it's more tempting to go the world's ways. We have more like crazy sexual immorality, right? Uh, sex outside of the marriage is norm. Uh, pornography is kind of just how, like whatever. It's just kind of normal. Homosexuality is rampant. I was just in Vancouver last weekend, and I couldn't believe the amount of openly gay relationships I saw walking down the streets in Stanley Park. Living together before marriage is common, right? Common law is widely accepted, and if you're not happy in your marriage, just get out, just commit adultery. All widely accepted. Gossip's okay, as long as no one's listening, just in group. Unforgiveness is okay, that's the standard. Again, as believers, we are not to be part of the world, but separated from them. So hopefully, if you knew nothing about Enoch, I hope that you see him in a different light to see the kind of man he was and that he is a man of, man of uncompromising faith, an unparalleled um, commitment to God. And may, may we be men and women just like him.